Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Christina Richardson, who's Associate Professor of History at Queens College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Dr. Richardson's research focuses on non-elite peoples of the medieval Middle East, with a focus on disability studies, race, and most recently, traveling peoples and the histories of traveling groups in the medieval Middle East. This is the topic of her latest book, titled Roma in the Medieval Islamic World, Literacy, Culture, and Migration, which proposes a new way of conceptualizing the history of medieval traveling groups and also argues for the central role that they played in Europe's early print culture. Culture. And this is what we're going to be discussing today. So welcome, Christina, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Maggie. It's so great to be here. So one of my main takeaways from your book was about the importance of names and naming and being precise when we name things and also how naming conventions can sometimes obfuscate historical realities. So in the medieval Middle East, the Roma were known first as the Banu Sasan, or the sons of, or the tribe of Sasan, and later as the Lugabet, which is the Arabic word for strangers. Can you talk about who the people were who were encompassed under these names and how these names were kind of created and used both by members of this group and by kind of outside observers? That's a great question, because I think I really needed to work through what the modern conventions of naming are and then break that down and really discard them to really start to understand what was happening in the Middle Ages. So in the introduction to the book, you know, I break down what the political stakes were after World War II that that isolated the Roma today in, you know, in the 20th century, 21st century, as this isolated diasporic community that was unrelated to anybody outside of India. And when their histories are told, if you read Roman historiography, you know, it's really told without, without referring to other peoples around them. Of course, you know, they'll talk about how the Europeans didn't like them. And that's about all you hear about people around them. And so you really get a sense that they traveled centuries, never meeting anyone. So, so that was distorting. And so it was really eye-opening, also, you know, uncomfortable for me to kind of figure out that in the past, 
there just was probably no singular term for a Romani person, right? That this was an idea, like they, they were a visible caste group in early 20th century Germany. And as visual castes often are um, all over the world, they were racialized, right? As, as, as separate and made distinct. Okay, to get to the Middle Ages, however, um, what was happening was, yes, as you've said, there were this a bit of an amorphous group. It was multi-ethnic, it was multilingual, so it doesn't fit in with the ways in which we categorize people today. Um, so a group of people who were united by a lifestyle, and their lifestyle seems to have been rooted in estrangement from the majority. And that's basically it. <laughs> like, I mean, that's a big thing. Um, this conscious rejection of the, you know, owning property or having a, a, a fixed profession and fixed income or something. Um, you know, the aspirations were different. And so what we find is that these sons of Sassan, um, who included people who were probably, you know, the proto-Roma or the or the Roma and other groups we might know today, like the Nawar, etc., uh, you know, that they all circulated together. They shared a a tribal, like a like a community or kin group dialect, right? Referred to as seen. But they all probably knew, of course, you know, the majority language of Arabic or Persian or Turkish, wherever they were, and also maybe in-group languages as well. So they were, you know, very literate, very verbal, I should say, and 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 literate. And, and this is what really stuck out for me as I kept reading that um their estrangement was in terms of also the shared dialect in terms of their social aspirations. And then, of course, this comes out in their name, right? The, the strangers. Something else I found really interesting was we tend to think of the Roma as being traditionally nomadic, that either by choice or because of persecution that they practice this mobile lifestyle. But you present some really interesting evidence to the contrary of the Roma in the medieval Middle East being deeply embedded into the mm. urban fabric with these dedicated Roma neighborhoods and housing complexes and cemeteries. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, like you were saying, with names like the strangers, mm. as well as in some of the you know poetry and other literary works that you cite, by members of this group, we get this sense of alienation and a sort of rootlessness, this sense of belonging both everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And these are characteristics that we tend to associate with nomadism. So can you elaborate on that? What's the evidence for this maybe more like stereotypical figure of the mm -hmm. itinerant Roma versus one who was a fixture in the urban development and the spatial organization of Cairo, for example. How do we kind of reconcile those two things? Yeah, that for me was also a bit of a revelation. Unfortunately, having been, you know, just in my lifetime, just having been steeped in sort of whatever the general ideas were about Romani peoples. But, uh, but yes, to learn that they were actually establishing or at least, you know, certain segments of the Qurabab population were establishing, were settling, at least in urban environments, was quite enlightening. You know, I mean, as I worked through that chapter, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more work to be done, certainly on some of the more nomadic portions, right, of, of the of the Quraba. I think I was definitely focusing on on the urban groups that were that were writing and, and printing. So what did I make of that? When they were settled in the cities, however, I mean, what was interesting was the type of housing they had. I did include in the book, there's actually a manuscript painting of, of a section of one of their homes, and there are descriptions of these homes in literary works. But the homes seem to have been abandoned buildings, maybe abandoned warehouses or just abandoned multifamily homes. 
like large groups would live there together communally. Married couples could be living alongside unattached single individuals. Right. So, so it was really a mix. You know, so we don't have much of the description of the indoors. There is one description in a makama and a fictional rendering about um, actually being, you know, well decorated with a lot of beggars' bowls on the wall, you know, hanging from the walls, and and there were also, you know, opulent furnishings and and drapes. Yeah, that was that was a bit of um that was a bit surprising. But what can I say? I don't I imagine this book as being kind of a an introduction to a much larger field. And hopefully other people will take up um some of the pieces that I haven't been able to completely put together. But as for the urban Roma, I think that is is something that helps us break down this idea that they were only mm-hmm. constantly mobile. Mm-hmm. So continuing along those lines, you make a really interesting argument that was entirely new to me about print technology and the use of block printing and block printed amulets among Roma communities in the Middle East and hypothesize that with a migration of the Roma into Eastern and Central Europe, starting in the 14th century, that they might have brought this technology with them. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about why the Roma in particular were such kind of proficient and prolific printers? Why was access to print technology and printed material so important to them? Um, and then how do you see this technology diffusing via the Roma from the Middle East into Europe? Yeah, maybe I want to hear also what you think, <laughs> because I'm sure with your studies on, on nomadism, et cetera, that... Um... I, I would just like to hear what anyone uh, thinks about that idea. But so as for my printing may have been important to them, what is interesting is as I actually finished up this study, I mean, I came to, I was teaching a course at my, at Queens College, uh, my home institution on printing before Gutenberg. And I had really great students. And by the end, where we were looking at printing from, you know, the Korean peninsula to to central Europe we started to wonder, is printing even that fascinating a technology? I mean, maybe because I'd been droning on and on about it for 15 weeks. But like, do we say it's fascinating because we're scholars who write books and read books, or we're supposed to write books and read books? Um, <laughs> we're supposed to love this. So, I mean, this is center of our own lives, right? And so printing is something that we might fetishize as a mark of genius and, and high civilization. But I mean, in the end, I mean, one of my students was just like, I mean, they're just everybody's just carving stuff into wood and then putting ink on it. Like, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about this. I'm not trying to diminish print history or book history, but I wonder if we maybe take it off its pedestal and just see what they were doing. Right. I mean, carving wood and carving tin, as they're saying in their, in their own writing and it's like inking these blocks and then print and stamping paper is fantastic. But um, technologically, I don't know, I, I won't go on for that one, but I will say is that it is a very mobile craft, right? And mm-hmm. so this is what is important for groups that even if they aren't, you know, circulating throughout and, and being, you know, having nomadic existences, you know, it's a low investment of money um, into the craft, right? Paper, at least in the medieval Middle East, being relatively inexpensive rag paper, and you can buy, there's a vibrant used paper market. And it's something that it's a portable technology, a portable stamp, you know, in your sock. I don't know. So its convenience was there. And it was also easy to conceal. And that seems to have been also a key part, right? To conceal the um, wooden stamps. And also that you could really mass produce amulets that you could sell for decent amounts of money. I mean, made it a a brilliant accessory also to their fortune-telling practices and astrological practices. So, I mean, it is a very brilliant marketing strategy. seems to be more than a technological um, thing for me, but I don't Mm. know. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I was just, it's one of those things that sort of seems so obvious when you think about it. You know, when you study Middle Eastern history, one of these kind of tropes that we always are told is that printing arrived in the Middle East very late. That's what we're always taught is, you know, it didn't become a widely used technology until the 18th century. And isn't that so late? And why did this, you know, all of these things, but then it's like, oh yeah, but of course there were things being printed before that for centuries. So it's just this sort of cognitive dissonance that is so prevalent in scholarship because we have this very Eurocentric fascination with Gutenberg and the printing press technology that sort of Mm -hmm. overrides all other print technologies. I mean, I was interested to learn about Romani printers more because I think in like Romani studies, there's a focus on um, metalworking. This comes up a little bit in my area of research, which is more in the 19th, 20th centuries, where sometimes in my sources, I encounter references to Romani groups interacting with Bedouin populations in the Middle East and who would either be living within Bedouin tribes and producing metal goods for them, or who would travel between different Bedouin tribes and trade metal goods to them. Yeah. So the print technology was just in the context of the Roma was just kind of new to me. It's that's also not one of the trades that I have heard about um, in the context of Romani peoples before. Well, let me also say that there is indication, I think in maybe it's a 13th century poem, but where they, and it's about the Huraba, and it says that, that their print blocks are made also of tin, of wood mm. and of yeah, keeping in mind sense. the history of, of metalworking, maybe this was a, a way in which they were able to incorporate that, that work into their print practice. Yeah. So can you talk about mm-hmm. trades a little bit more? So we've talked about printing. Um, you mentioned astrology um, and fortune telling, mm-hmm. which is another one of those trades that we somewhat stereotypically associate with the mm-hmm. Romani today. Can you talk a little bit more about how these people were employed? Yes, I would say I can. I found modern anthropologists and, and their work actually really informative for thinking about labor regimes of, of medieval Kuraba. But what they seem to have done, even though, you know, the ones I, I'm mostly studying, the urban Kuraba, they were certainly reliant on settled urban populations. If it's Cairo, if it's Damascus, if it isn't, but any city. So they were not producing agriculture. They were not, you know, they weren't hunter and gatherers. So they occupied these economic niches in these cities. In a sense, some of them were kind of luxurious in the sense that, you know, no one needed that luxury in the sense of nothing you need to survive. So the types of um, traits or trades, excuse me, that we do see in the past are entertainers, so in public entertainers, although there is indication that some were hired for, say, private celebrations like weddings. So I did have, I think, very quickly mentioned about a wedding in Damascus, in which, you know, a diarist is writing about them, and he's complaining that their music was so loud, they had all these foot about performing and dancing, and it just went on all night. So maybe there was um, some of that. The street performances to get a crowd together, and then, of course, part of the performance was to ask the crowd to, to pay for what they've seen. So they claim to have trained lions and elephants. Maybe that's an exaggeration or maybe that was rarer, but more commonly training cats and dogs and mice and monkeys, as well as a, a number of medical professions. There's a pharmacist and, and it also says, you know, the kinds of things they were actually 
giving their customers like baladur, which I wrote about in another book. It's a plant that you ingest and it supposedly can enhance your memory. And so scholars like to take baladur. So the so the historian Baladuri, his grandfather reportedly died of an overdose of, of baladur. So, you know, it, it was a dangerous kind of thing that the Buddha traded in. They also seem to have either done tattoos, um, tattooed people, or it also seems that the one woman who was mentioned in all of the sources as a as a tradesperson was someone who performed female genital cutting. So there's some of these niche medical fields. And additionally, they performed what we might consider like public health measures today. So clearing the streets at night of, say, animal corpses, assisting with executions. Oh, and then again, related to the print, astrology was a big one. And it was actually the astrologers who seemed to have really focused and done the printing work. They claimed that they were the ones who printed these amulets and these Quranic excerpts and these biblical excerpts and sold them to their crowds. So a wide range, but mm. all of it, again, dependent on a settled population with spare money. And what about social hierarchy and social organization? Like the name Banu Sasan is so kind of interesting and evocative in that sense, because the word Banu, that means tribe in Arabic, implies a tribal social structure. And then that also, I think in the context of the Middle East, it I think it's part of the reason why scholars or maybe people in general tend to think of the Roma as being nomadic is because Bedouin tribes or nomadic tribal populations in the Middle East are often called Banu mm. something. So can you talk a little bit about what that mm. kind of internal social structure of the Roma actually looked like? Sure. And as far as I can tell, you know, from the sources I, I had at hand, the social structure was very similar to what we might expect. So in the sense that there was a, a chief, right, of, of a particular segment of the Hudaba, um, typically male, and he would introduce young boys into, say, some of the, tra- oh, begging, gosh, I didn't even, how did I forget mm. that? That was like the big one in all of my sources. So one of the big trades was, of course, begging and men, women, and children participated. You might consider, you know, the bread and butter of most of the groups I, I was able to look at in the Middle Ages. So the the male would introduce young boys into the profession. They would go out and beg together on the streets. So the poetry I was able to look at, you know, they describe in exhausting, excruciating detail the tricks and the ways in which they would try to play on the audience in the public, you know, goodwill or their religious sentiment and, and give them money. So there was definitely this male-dominated hierarchies. I don't hear much about women, unfortunately, in the sources. Um, I did. Ha- I do have a chapter on one Kharib poet. I argue he's Kharib. No one has before that. On the basis of where he lived, he lived in a Kharib neighborhood. He mixed the Khuraba dialect into his Arabic poetry. He claimed, actually, in a poem that he was even a Kharib. But in that, he doesn't even speak about women, except to say that his mother was basically slandered as a whore, and that he himself enjoyed penetrating young boys. His text is, we'd consider exploitative, like, great. You know, he's, he talks about the boys crying out in pain uh, from being angrily pen- penetrated. So what you mostly find is just a lot of rhetoric about male dominance, which is, again, I think, par for the course of the period I'm I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't find massive uh, deviations, but maybe what we might say is the dominant culture. Okay. And you mentioned luxury, um, and I wanted to sort of ask more about that, because again, the name Banu Sassan also, you know, as you talk about, is maybe constructed 
by the Roma to evoke an association with the Sasanian Mm -hmm. dynasty. Then I was also interested by some references you made later on to when the Roma started migrating to Europe, that these Mm -hmm. kind of safe passage, I don't know, permissions were given by rulers to presumably Roma peoples whose leaders were named as dukes or counts or these kind of noble titles. So I'm interested in claims towards nobility or a kind of grandeur and social status that the Roma are maybe evoking. Okay, well, so this is another moment when I really also had to kind of question, this one was easier for me because I don't like royalty, but to question the assumptions, like what makes, what gives any royal person, any sort of authority. So so I did like the fact that, yes, as you're referring to, that as these Huraba or these Roma, who were probably speaking a dialect called Hurubat Romani, that I'll talk about later, but um, that as they were moving into Europe, they'd always introduce themselves with, the, or the leader, I should say, introduced himself with a royal title like Duke or Count Michael. They seem to have been accepted, right? I mean, there wasn't, from the sources I look at, there wasn't much questioning about their status. But I do like the idea that they, again, did not feel perhaps cowed, that they had to actually enter into the European mode of who was a royal and who was not. They just, I don't know, in their own environments, in their own hierarchies, which is what people do worldwide, right? But it does feel maybe a little jarring to watch this group of beggars. They did beg as they went and they maintain these titles. And so I think that juxtaposition between obvious wealth and title is broken down. But I, I found that very moving. Yeah. And something else I thought was interesting in terms of the Romani kind of self-presentation to the outside world was around religion and how during this migration to Europe, they presented themselves as Christians or as persecuted Christians who were therefore seeking protection in the Christian world. But then you also write about how in the Middle East, the Romani were a Shiite minority who practiced Shiism. Can you talk a bit about sort of religion in general among this group? Yes, absolutely. I would say that in their private writings, not private, but but in the writings in which they, they do seem to imagine a mixed audience of Quraba and majority Arabs. Mm-hmm. They seem to present themselves as followers of Shiism. And they say explicitly that their astrology is a form of 12 or Shi'i astrology. Um, they're just indications throughout various works. The work songs, say, of the in Arabic, the Masha'ili, or the people would walk around, the men mostly would walk around with torches at night and again, clean the street and, and keep the peace. So as they moved through the streets, they claimed, and, and this is in a shadow play about them, that they sang songs together, work songs. And the work songs are, are very much venerating Ali and saying that there's a commitment to Shiism. I found that very fascinating because it, if you read the text of their amulets, they're not you know, advancing a particular sectarian focus, um, at least in their Arabic Islamic texts. So in the amulets that they actually print, they're range of Quranic verses. They also get print in Hebrew from the uh, Hebrew Bible. They also print in Greek, uh, presumably from the Septuagint. They also print in Syriac. Um, They print in Aramaic. And they're printing for a wide range. And they even say, you know, we'll print for anybody in any faith as long as you basically buy it. So that is kind of interesting that there's not a proselytizing um, aspect. And I'll have to say, by the end of working on this book, 
I felt that probably the Shi'i astrology was what their sort of religious orientation was, at least in the Middle East. This is not a new thesis about astrology as a religion, but I thought that maybe with further study, maybe someone could actually more forcefully make that argument. And the reason I say that is because their manuscript traditions, which were also very interesting, read a little bit like texts for, for life study. So I felt that there might be something there. And also as they came into Europe, as you were asking, and they did present themselves as people who had converted from Islam to Christianity and then flip-flopped and kept going back. And because they were um, repeated converts, their bishop had asked, had, not, had mandated that they should wander for seven years in penance. Mm. And so they did that. I mean, they wandered. And when seven years came up, of course, you know, they're still wandering. And so they had to get new letters from new kings saying, okay, we need more time. So so that was kind of a funny um, ruse, but it, it's interesting that they were able to tap in so closely into, you know, into what the society expected of them. Like that to me is such a reading of the room. That's so, I don't know, impressive. Mm. And you talked about languages and the use of majority languages of the people around them and producing texts and amulets in whatever language was spoken by the person commissioning it. Then there are also these internal Romani languages, which as you write about, scholars tend to think of those languages not as languages, as jargon or something that functioned just Mm -hmm. to keep outsiders out and to cover Mm -hmm. these more illicit activities um, that the Romani sometimes participated in to hide their tricks. Like you talked about the begging tricks and things like that Mm -hmm. to keep those secret from outsiders. So I thought your analysis of their languages was Mm -hmm. much more nuanced than that, which I appreciated. Could you expand on you know, what those languages actually are um, and how you think that they functioned and were used by the Romani people. Yes, I feel badly saying it, like I ran up against all these kind of frustrating narratives in scholarship, but this was another one. I mean, because the study took me into so many, you know, art history, linguistics and print history, and, and you're running up against these narratives that were so res- resilient and, you know, that and you would find work after work in which it was just, you know, the same presumptions were not being questioned. So yeah, so this one that the Huraba and in the past and in the present were speaking in slangs. And so I think at first, I mean, because I didn't know anything about this group, I I had never learned about the scene language. This this was the tribal dialect that everybody would know in addition to maybe other other languages that they might know, Mm -hmm. right? So I think multilingualism was pretty common. So this was not unusual. But um, that scene turns out to be a language that is a mixed language. And this is a, a newer concept for me, and maybe linguists in the audience know more about it. But the grammar and the structure of the language is that of the majority community around, around one. So in this case, Arabic. And the vocabulary, the lexicon, is of something else. So in this case, I was not able to identify the source of, of the lexica, hmm. but it's embedded in an Arabic structure. And so this is similar to say, Yiddish, right? That has a German grammatical basis. And then, you know, you have words from Hebrew and et cetera, Romani even, right? Embedded into this German structure. So I think this is just a phenomenon of contact languages. So I think, you know, if we look at different contact languages like Swahili, you hmm. know, with a Bantu structure and then Persian and Arabic words in it, we might get a sense of who was interacting with whom. So this is why I felt that contact languages were fascinating. Mm-hmm. So you get a sense of, you know, this, this minority group 
interacting in an Arabic space, trying to hold on to some to something, and and this language comes about. So that's what scene is. It's a mixed language with Arabic and an unknown lexica. And in you know linguistic scholarship, it is referred to you know, in the modern period, because this is, this medieval language, I should say, seen is still spoken today. So that was also what was shocking to know that people in the Nile Valley were still speaking this medieval language. So that's is also how I knew it wasn't a slang. So I thought, oh my gosh, slangs don't last like 900 years. So what is this? A language. But linguists have often described, yes, as a secret language ascribing really nefarious intent to everyone speaking it, which has really, I think, just slowed down academic scholarship on these types of languages because they're seen as frivolous. So you never, I never found in any of the sources where the Quran referred to this, to seen as something that was temporary or slangy, or it was just what they spoke with. It was mm-hmm. just the natural language. And as I say in the book, you know, it's really an outsider's perspective. It's really centering the person who doesn't know the language, you know, who feels excluded, who wants to kind of denigrate the speakers of this language. This is how all languages function. I mean, if I'm on the subway and I hear someone speaking, I don't know, Tagalog, I don't assume that, you know, anyone's doing anything wrong. It's just what languages do. I'm outside it. And that's, I'm okay with that. So, but it's funny that scholars could never make that kind of separation and and thought. So you have a real degradation of this language in the field. And that's really a tragedy. Yeah. I mean, another point that you made that sort of like your printmaking argument, it's a sort of thing that once you hear it, sort of like, oh yeah, obviously, was that (laughs) if it's a secret language that was just intended to sort of obscure activities from outsiders, then you would expect only certain vocabulary to be Mm -hmm. like translated. You wouldn't expect prepositions to have (laughs) entirely different words, which is the case in C. And sort of like, oh yeah, obviously that is actually a language, not just (laughs) slang. So getting deeper into the sources, we were talking before we started the recording about the problem of sources when attempting to research this topic. And, you know, this is a frequent issue when conducting research into nomadic peoples. This is something that every previous guest on this podcast has brought up is this problem of sources or lack thereof. And I think this holds true for the medieval Mm. Roma, regardless of the extent of their nomadism, right? But you cite this really rich variety of literary sources from a variety of genres, as well as, you know, some information from the material record that kind of comes together to give this really evocative impression of what life was like for the medieval Islamic Roma. So first, I'm curious how you got into this topic. You wrote that you had written about the Roma in a previous book, but sort of dismissed it at the time. So I'm curious what led you to rediscover this topic and your interest in it and its importance. And then if you could also maybe describe how you went about conducting this research sort of logistically. And yeah, what are the kinds of sources where we can glean information about the Roma in the medieval Middle East? I mean, these are, you know, really key questions about archive, right? Um, that, no, that I, I, as I said, and I wanted to implicate myself in the generation of scholars who had, you know, written off the Benu Sassan as, as basically unimportant, which is what I did I, in like less than a sentence in my first book. I was just like this band of beggars and I didn't investigate who they were. And I assumed that they were just 
unimportant. So this is so this is also about my growth as a scholar too. Um, but as for the sources, when I read privately, I mean, I of course read in my field, but when I read privately, I read a lot of sociology, not a lot, but I mean, I read sociology and anthropology and, and I read about African-American history. I like the histories of non-elites. So I, I won't pick up a book about Queen Elizabeth or anything like that. I didn't watch The Crown. When you read and when you're kind of steeped and also from family histories about, say, Jim Crow or maybe narratives that have come down about um, enslavement in the Americas. But you get a sense that, you know, the archives are rather violent towards people who are not Queen Elizabeth, mm-hmm. <laughs> who are not on top of the world, right? We didn't own any property. We didn't. But I think I'm growing more sensitive towards how to understand these. So, you know, the archaeology of slavery is to me really fascinating and um, how material culture, not in museums, typically because that seems to enshrine very elite production. So, you know, it's also trying to be creative about what kind of material aspects are out there. And that's why archaeology to me is a little more interesting than museum studies, because mm-hmm. you get a sense of how daily life is actually conducted. So I went into this project uh, completely on accident. I think, I, you know, I say on the to open the book, you know, I was reading a manuscript that I later edited with my friend, uh, Boris Librens. It came out in 2021 um, in Beirut, we both found this manuscript independently of each other. And I wrote to him and then we're both like, okay, let's, let's work on this. I was struck by this one passage in which there was something was mentioned about the language of the Huraba and I did not know who the Huraba were. But because this was clearly a people, because it was in a list of like six other languages, Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and then the Huraba language, I thought, oh, I need to know who these people are. So I think it was the sense that whoever these strangers or foreigners were, (laughs) that they were able to speak to each other in a certain way. And I wanted to learn about it. You know, the poetry is actually so rich and detailed. It really reads to me like an ethnography that I was able to follow these traces in whatever direction I wanted. I consciously didn't work on topics that we might expect me to work on like music or Hmm. musical performance or nomadism, actually. (laughs) But um, Sorry. But following those those strands, what stuck out for me was that this was one of the most literate groups I would ever encountered in my readings of the medieval Middle East. Of course, my readings are limited, but even in that limited group, this was astounding. Like the printing, the oral, the written, the illustrated manuscripts, it was astounding. So as for the logistics, it ended up being a lot of museum visits, a lot of archive visits, Yale and Princeton and, and, and in Europe. It's harder in Cairo, so I didn't really do visits to Cairo, but there are prints there. I think it's just doggedness. I I think I'm just nosy about certain things, not about people's lives, but I am really nosy about the past. And I really, really want to know how the past worked. I I won't stop. And I didn't stop. That was what it was. Trying to break through a very violent archive, what about not in basically chronicles, and trying to find where can I find traces Yeah, there are two categories of literary sources in particular that I found really interesting, and I think listeners might as well. So I was just wanted to ask about those, and they're the shadow plays and the astrology books. So can you just talk a little bit about what those two things actually are and sort of how they were, well, how they were used, basically, like how they were produced and how they were used? Okay, great. So to start with the um, shadow plays, so the only pre-modern text that we have of an Arabic shadow play is from the 13th century by Ibn Daniel. And he wrote a trilogy of plays. I believe it's the second one in the trilogy is called Ajib Maghrib. So the strange and the wondrous, the wondrous and the strange, maybe I should say. So what it is, it's a shadow play that has a number of maybe 20 to 30 
characters, they come onto stage, they give a monologue about their profession, and then they move off stage and another one comes in. So you can imagine how that would work, the candle and a, and a frame and a curtain <laughs> and the puppets. So the first person to speak is the Ajib, the wondrous, and then the Kharib speaks. And he gives a monologue about being an archetypal member of the Huraba, as explained by his name. And then these other individual members, so the lion tamer, the elephant tamer, the clown, the et cetera. So they march through the play. And when you get to the astrologer, actually, and they're all men except for one woman, right, who's, who seems to be the female genital cutter. The astrologer is a man and he has his astrologer's tools. He has a book, which I'll talk about, and he has a stool and he has an astrolabe. And he talks about printing and prints. And it's obviously fiction. But the fact is, if you match up his language with language and printed amulets that we have today, they match up spectacularly. So I didn't do that work. That was work done by Mark Mühlhäusler um, when he was working in Utah. But it is fascinating. If he and if you go to his article, which is on JSTOR, you can see that he's mashed up, you know, sections of that text with many sections from amulets, and you can see that Ibn Daniel is drawing from real life. So that made me wonder how much of this is actually an attempt to again present some of their own world, not only to themselves but also to again, a mixed audience, so a majority also Arab audience. And you also have interspersed among the Arabic text, you have seen excerpts. There's an assumption that someone out there understands what they're saying. Um, so that was quite lovely to have that as a source and quite informative. And so relatedly, the Quraba astrologers also produced these marvelous illustrated books called the Bulhan, and that's what it's called in scene. And there is actually a Bulhan at Oxford University's Bodleian Library, and it's fully digitized, so you can really just leisurely go through that. It has you know, hundreds of drawings, not drawings, paintings, excuse me. And I do believe that there are other like fragmented uh, bullhands and, and other collections, but this full one is quite remarkable. I mean, what I find remarkable about it is that it was not just something that stayed within the Hurabek community, as I say in the book, and this is my rare venture into the royal spaces, so that the Ottoman Sultan actually commissioned two translations of this Arabic text into Ottoman Turkish for his two daughters, Aisha and Fatme. And then it also spread into Safavid Iran, and into India and, and, and in courts. So it actually spread right from this Hurabah milieu into the most elite spaces. And so I found that interesting because we often talk about cultural exchange, you know, coming from the courts to the public. And this was just a nice reversal of that, that stereotype, I guess. So maybe just a final question to wrap things up and also to bring us into the present. And you touched on this already. But what I found really compelling in your methodological approach is how you interweave the narrative of medieval Roma history with evidence from mm -hmm. the present day or from the modern period and drawn you know, linguistic and sociological evidence from contemporary Roma communities in the Middle East to demonstrate continuity or the sort of embeddedness of Roma languages and culture in the Middle East across time. As you said, this is particularly important because that doesn't often happen in scholarship. So what are some of the contemporary resonances of the period that you study for the Roma in the present? And then also conversely, how do some of the ways that the Roma are constructed as a subject of scholarly inquiry today affect how historians conceive of and understand the Roma in the past? Yeah, I think, yes, you're right that, you know, my book is kind of haunted by the present. Basically, every chapter has 
a very specific argument about a different aspect of, of the past. But I also wanted to show, and the introduction was a way to show that, you know, the ways in which we imagine the past are so brutally shaped by our present. And in the case of the Roma, right, it's brutally shaped by the Nazi Holocaust, in which Roma and in Sinti and Yanish groups were, you know, targeted, racialized with their pseudo-racial science and targeted for persecution. So I wanted to show that how that destructive and horrifying act really has shaped the way we've understood mm -hmm. these groups in the past, right? And so when after World War II, in order to collect reparations, the Roma had to prove that they were racially persecuted. So they had to present themselves as a race um, using unfortunate Nazi racial science. It was such a perversion of justice that the that West Germany had them do this, first of all. They did that and they still weren't able to collect reparations. That's another story that modernists work on. It's, it's a very fascinating tale. In constructing themselves as a race, they also did not emphasize Asian connections because they wanted to show that they were Europeans too. I mean, they are Europeans, but part of doing that was to say, you know, we're distinct from these other people. So I think that also made it difficult for modern scholars to enter into this idea that there was an, a significant Asian history. And if you look at any history of the Roma, you know, they'll talk about India and then they'll just go to the Balkans pretty quickly. And um, in just their 700 years, no one knows what happened. <laughs> so it doesn't really incentivize medievalists, I think, to work on it. And another sort of tragedy of, of how this has shaped perception is that we also don't think of Roma today as living in the Middle East. I mean, of any, I mean, we might think of, if we know about them, the dome and the loam and the no water and the what but the Rome, and, and there is actually, it was actually a former professor of mine at um, University of Michigan, who in 1970 wrote an article about Romani that he overheard being spoken in the village of Zargar outside mm. of Tehran. So, and, and you can read, I mean, listeners can find that article on JSTOR too. But, so, but the idea is that, you know, there is a living presence. I mean, it may not be very large, I get that, but there is a living remnant of, you know, Romani populations in the Middle East that we should maybe attend to. And, and the significance moving forward is that maybe we can have modern studies of Roma that really seek mm -hmm. to integrate this Asian aspect of their history and their contributions to Western modernity. If I am right, if my argument in my book is correct, they were important drivers of technology and in the public sphere and printing in Europe. Again, decades before Gutenberg, I argue that they laid the groundwork for his work. So, you know, just different narratives, I hope, can come up in different mm -hmm. appreciations for European history. Yeah, no, that was great. I think that's a good note to end it on. You've said there's, I think, a lot of potential in this topic. I know when I was reading your book, I was highlighting things where I was like, oh, I want to look into that. I wonder if I can find more about that. And I hope, I mean, I'm sure other scholars will feel the same and that this will help push the field forward. In your conclusion, you propose the mm -hmm. kind of creation of a field of not just Romani studies, but Uruba studies focusing on the Roma in the Middle East. Uh, and like you said, the many dimensions of their lives and contributions there. Thank you so much for joining me. That was fascinating. Exactly. That was great. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. And of course, special thanks to Dr. Christina Richardson for coming on to talk to me.
I'll post some links and images and further resources related to the content of this episode on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod. So please check that out if you're interested. You can also contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or if there's a topic you'd like me to cover in the future. Thanks so much for listening. 